Thank you, Blake and, and Jen, for leading us this morning. Appreciate that. If you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, or sorry, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Every army needs a commanding officer. If they don't have a commanding officer, the army is in chaos. Every business needs a boss. If they don't have a boss, the business has no direction, no purpose. Every play needs a director. Without the director, the actors don't know what role they're supposed to play or how they're supposed to play it. Every football team needs a coach. If it doesn't have a coach, no one knows what they're supposed to to do. No one knows where they're supposed to be. No one knows how they're supposed to get there. Just ask Oklahoma. <clears throat> every kingdom every kingdom needs a king. If it doesn't have a king, or they don't follow the king's direction, then the kingdom collapses under its own weight. This morning we're going to be looking at the last two verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. But we're also going to be zooming out and looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. As we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been establishing His authority, and He's been defining our role as citizens of His kingdom, and our role not only in His kingdom, but also our role in the rest of the world. And so with that in mind, let's look at part of the text that we'll be discussing this morning, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Now, we, we've been in Matthew for some time now. We started the Sermon on the Mount back in February, and we're going to finish it on the last day of this year. We took the scenic route, you might say. That's what my parents used to say as we drive the long way. We took the scenic route. So we started this in February. We're going to finish it uh, today, the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll continue in the rest of Matthew in the coming weeks. And the objective this morning is really pretty simple. We're going to recap a, a lot of the things that we've already looked at in Matthew. But since the next time that we meet, we'll be going into a new year, and all the talk will be about New Year's resolutions and things like that. I felt like we'd just kind of get in the spirit and talk about how all of this relates to our church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, going forward in the coming years and the priorities that we'll have as a church going forward, the priorities that we'll have for our community around us as well. There are going to be three main points that I want us to see this morning. And then as we get to the application, we're going to look at four things that apply specifically to us as a local body. The first point that I want you to see in this text is that Jesus has authority over his kingdom. Jesus has authority over his kingdom. Now, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew ends it by telling us that when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Now, 
you might be tempted to think of this as just a throwaway line. That Matthew is just kind of giving this at the end of the, the Sermon on the Mount as a way of just sort of transitioning us into chapter 8, which we'll get to next week, where he's going to talk about Jesus having healing uh, people of various sorts of ailments and things like that. And it's just this is just one of those lines at the end, right, where he just kind of throws it out there. When Jesus had finished these things, everybody was astonished. Now let's go on to what we're really talking about. But, but it's not that. This, is, this, this line is anything but that. The reason we know that is because Matthew repeats this exact phrasing when Jesus had finished. He repeats it several times throughout the book. Uh, we, we read this, we'll read this again in, in chapter 11, verse 1, where Matthew says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples... Then we'll see it again in 1353. Matthew says, when Jesus had finished these parables. Again in Matthew 19, 1, he says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings. And then again, finally, in 26, 1, where he says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. These repeated Phrases that Matthew uses throughout the book break the book up into sections for us. They break the book up into sections, and each section has a narrative section where it describes Jesus doing something or going to a place and interacting with people, and then a big block of Jesus' teaching. And so, this first section that we're in. This introduction to the, sermon, to, the, to the kingdom of heaven is where Jesus is literally going through and introducing us to what the kingdom of heaven is about. So everything involved in these chapters from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 7 is introducing us to everything concerning the kingdom of heaven, to different aspects about the kingdom of heaven. For instance, who are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven? How do they live? In what do they hope? What are the motivations of the hearts of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven? How do they respond when other people around them are wicked and do wicked things? Now, all of it is concerned. All of the, the chapters 4 to 7 are all concerned with getting us those answers as we're being introduced to what the kingdom of heaven is and who are its constituents. But Matthew is not just introducing us through the mouth of Jesus to the kingdom of heaven. He's also making a much bigger point about Jesus and about the kingdom that he's bringing. Now, if you're keeping score at home, Matthew breaks his book up into five distinct sections. Five sections with then an introduction and a conclusion. Now, what reason could a Jew have to introduce his predominantly Jewish audience to a kingdom with a central leader who has come out of Egypt and through the desert for 40 days and then comes into the promised land to conquer it with news of the kingdom of God? What reason would a Jew have to, to do all of that and divide his book up into five sections? seems obvious that Matthew has patterned his gospel to mirror the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
Now, I've already discussed many times as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount and really the entire Gospel uh, of Matthew, that Matthew flat out tells us that Jesus is the new and better Israel. Jesus retraces the steps of Israel going into Egypt, and then he comes out. And Matthew tells us when he comes out of Egypt, that it fulfills prophecy. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And we've seen in our small groups on Sunday morning as we've gone through the minor prophets, that's a quote from Hosea 11.1. And that quote in Hosea is pertaining to the children of Israel. Out of Egypt, I called my son. I called you, Israel. You came out of Egypt, and I called you out of Egypt. What Matthew is telling us here is that it's not only about Israel. It was pointing to a greater son, a son that was to come, the actual son of God who would come out of Egypt. And out of Egypt, I would call my son. He leaves Egypt and he immediately goes through the waters in Matthew's gospel. In this case, the waters of the Jordan River to be baptized and then out of the waters and into the wilderness, this time for 40 days instead of 40 years where he too is tempted by Satan, except he does not fail. Then he enters the land with the message of the kingdom of God, conquering the promised land with his kingdom. So Matthew is further demonstrating then that Jesus is the new and better Moses. He's coming to bring the kingdom of God into the promised land in a way that Moses never could do. Remember, Moses failed to enter the promised land because he disobeyed the Lord in the wilderness. Jesus, however, did not. And so then Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, having defeated the devil in the wilderness, Jesus then, much like Moses, takes his place on the mountain and begins to teach. And what does he lay out? But a, He starts with a critique of the Mosaic law given by Moses, which is almost the entire content of chapter 5 of Matthew. But here's the reason that I lay all, about, all of that out. This statement at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is meant to help us understand what Jesus was teaching, that what Jesus was teaching was received by the people as something more than what the rest of their teachers taught them. What Jesus was telling them was more than what their teachers taught most of the teaching of the law of Moses would have just been really compiling the thoughts and the teachings of many people around the day and, and before their day that had written down their teaching on various passages. And the teaching of that day would really just be compiling, similar to what a preacher would do in this day and age, they would compile the thoughts of 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 many commentators on several different on the passage at hand and then and then teach that on a Sunday by Sunday basis or in that day on a Saturday by Saturday basis. So the things that I tell you about passages, even the passage that or even just this, the part that I've just gone through is is a is a compilation of of the teaching of many different people. You wouldn't want that to come from my own head. That wasn't invented by me. You wouldn't want that either. You wouldn't want it to be New, you would want it to be uh, right and true. And that's the way people have taught for thousands of years, even including Jesus' own day. But in the Sermon on the Mount, we don't find Jesus doing that. Instead, he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. 
You have heard it said, but I say to you. And, and some of the things that he's saying is extending or fulfilling the meaning of Moses' law that was originally given. So as an example, he makes a comment on divorce, that it's not acceptable. He just flat out says it. it, it it's not acceptable. But the people, he'll say this again later in chapter 18, and the people are going to push back on him. And they're going to say, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Moses permitted us to get a divorce. And what does Jesus say to them? That's true. The law of Moses did permit them to write their wives a certificate of divorce. And here Jesus is coming in saying, don't divorce your wives. What's the deal? And he says, yeah, it's true. He did. But he did it because your hearts are hard. He did it because you can't bear actual righteousness. Your hearts are hardened and you can't you can't hear what, what should actually be required of you. That's not the way it was from the beginning. That's not how God intended marriage. God intended marriage to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And never to be separated. You see, he, he's making comments on the origin of the law and the original meaning of the law and how it's supposed to function. He's teaching as someone who has authority over the law itself, who has the authority to say and make critiques about that law, not merely just the authority to teach or just compiling what other people have said. So Jesus tells the crowd in chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is, is really careful to say, I am not critiquing the law in a way that would suggest that you can just write it off, that you can just get rid of it, that you can scratch it out, cut it out of your Bible, just, just send it on down the river. I am saying that the Old Testament law and the prophets are incomplete without me. Amen. They're incomplete and insufficient for righteousness without me. You need to understand that. Imagine for just a second that we were going to record a new song. We had the sound booth all set up, and the room all set up, all soundproofed and everything, all the recording equipment, and we wanted to record a band playing a song. Well, Typically, you wouldn't just cram the room filled with the musicians, plug in all their instruments, have all the microphones set up, and have the band just play through the song a thousand times until we get the exact right version that we want. That's not typically how music is recorded. Instead, what do you do? Well, the first thing you do is you bring in the drummer, and he puts down the beat, right? Once he has the beat recorded, then you bring in some more musicians. You bring in a guitarist, and he lays down the guitar on top of that beat. And then you bring in the bassist, and he lays down the bass track on top of that beat. And then last, you bring in the vocals or whatever other parts of the song. You bring them in one by one until you record each part of the song piece by piece. And then at the end, you have the song. Well, similarly, Jesus is telling us that the law of Moses is the drumbeat of the kingdom of heaven. It's the, the beat of the kingdom of heaven. The prophets are the instruments 
They're coming in and providing instrumentation to the kingdom of heaven. They're playing the song, the same song that has been played for years now. They're playing the same song. And they're readying God's people. They're readying the hearts of God's people for what? They're readying them for life in the presence of God. That's what they're readying them for. That's what the law of Moses is there to do, is to ready the hearts of God's people to live in his presence. What, is the pro- what are the prophets there to do? To ready the hearts of God's people to live in his presence. But the law of Moses and the prophets, though they're pointing in this direction of God coming to dwell with his people, they're playing this song. The righteousness that they present is incomplete. Jesus is now giving the full presentation. He's laying out the true righteousness that God requires. He's, he's, he's coming to provide the rest of the song. And he says, don't throw out the drums. Don't throw out the rest of the instruments. Those are important. Those ready the hearts of his people to live in God's presence. But it's incomplete. It's part of the song, but it's incomplete. The drums are incomplete by themselves. You need to know what I'm telling you is the rest of the song. It's the fulfillment, if you will, of the song. So what Matthew is getting at at the end here is that people recognize that Jesus is not merely just coming in to teach them what the law says, like like an ordinary, normal teacher that they hear, like the rest of the people, making commentary on the, the law of Moses. But what he's actually doing is laying down the vocal track and providing some much-needed instrumentation to fill out or fulfill the rest of the song. And here's what the song sounds like when it's all put together. It doesn't sound simply like I shouldn't cheat on my wife. You shouldn't commit adultery. It doesn't just sound like that, but that I shouldn't even look at a woman lustfully. That's the intent. That's the fulfillment. That's the direction that it's pointing. Moses is readying your heart, helping you to understand, I shouldn't cheat on my wife, that that is sin. So that when Jesus comes along and says, don't even look at a woman lustfully, or you've committed adultery with her, it makes sense. This has been a sin for so long. This is the right interpretation of it. It doesn't sound like I shouldn't, I should, shouldn't merely avoid killing my brother or committing murder. No, that might have been what it sounded like when all you had was the drumbeat. But what it really means is that you shouldn't even be angry with one another. Or you've already committed ang- a murder in your heart. In other words, he's come to fulfill the song that determines how one lives in the presence of God. By showing Jesus to us this way, Matthew's saying that Jesus' teaching is authoritative for us. That what Jesus is establishing is the kingdom of heaven and the laws that its citizens should then live by. And the kind of of people that its citizens should be. So then, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as the local church, like a manual Baptist church, it functions like an embassy for the kingdom of heaven. We function like an embassy for the kingdom of heaven. And so we should consider then, 
that what Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the Gospels, and, and in fact the rest of the New Testament, is authoritative for us. And it impacts the way that we should think as a church body. It impacts the way we should be as a church body. It impacts the things that we should value, the, even the, down to the programming that we should have and the way we should orient our program. It, it affects all of those things. And they should be authoritative for us. We should take our direction from the head because that's what Matthew is saying that he is. So there are two things that I want to do with the rest of our time. First... I want to briefly remind us of two themes, two main themes that are running through the Sermon on the Mount as kind of a, a recap of the rest of, of the, the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. And then second, I want to talk about what that means for our future. And in that part, I, I want to just apply it to us, but then really kind of think just in dreaming what the next 40 years of Emmanuel Baptist Church really looks like. What sort of things that we're going to prioritize as a church, particularly when it comes to representing the kingdom of heaven in the community around us. So first, let me remind us of the two big themes that are running through the Sermon on the Mount. The first is this. We represent His kingdom through inward righteousness. We represent His kingdom through inward righteousness. And when I say inward righteousness, what I mean is, and what I, what I think Jesus means, is that the, ki the kind of righteousness or piety that only you and God know about, the kind of righteousness that really is between you and God, only you and He know about. Now these are the kinds of things that go on in your brain from day to day, or even really second by second. And you might say, well, who really cares about that? The thoughts? Every little stray thought? Like, who really cares about that? It's, it's really the actions that should matter, right? If, if I think this, but I, I do that, isn't that what really, really matters? Well, evidently, Jesus actually cares about all of it. Okay? So, he, he cares about all of it. So, you'll recall in the Beatitudes, at the very opening of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, 3 through 12, those are the Beatitudes. Jesus leads off his sermon with this character profile of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We talked about that at length. We went through each beatitude one at a time, and we looked at uh, what Jesus is doing there. And it seems that he's laying out a character profile for a citizen of God's kingdom. And, and what we see there is that the first couple of characteristics that he lays out are inward dispositions. A heavenly citizen is characterized by poverty of spirit. The citizen of the kingdom of heaven is poor in spirit. In other words, they know in their hearts and in their minds that they have no rightful claim to eternal life. They have no right to be there. It's not as though God owes them some sort of salvation, but instead they're completely dependent on God, like someone who is impoverished would be completely dependent. So we are poor in spirit. We're completely dependent on Jesus Christ for our passport to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But we also says they're mourners. They mourn over their own sin and the sin of the world around them. There's an inward grief about their sin. So this is characteristic of a Christian. A Christian is inwardly grieved 
over his own sin and the sin of the world around him. And, and, and it should be further noted, this can't be faked. You can't, you can't fake that kind of inward grief. Now, you might be able to fool everyone in this room. You might be able to, to do things that are characteristic of someone who is a, a citizen of God's kingdom. But you can't fake the inward grief between you and the Lord over your own sin. Jesus says when it comes to lust, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. What could possibly cause someone to be that decisive over their own sin, that they would be willing to gouge out their own eye or cut off their own hand? Someone who's mourning over their own sin. Someone who inwardly grieves over his own sin. This is a character profile of the heavenly citizen. He's so grieved over his own sin that he desires nothing more than to be rid of it and do whatever it takes. We've also seen that inward righteousness isn't motivated by the attention of others. Jesus warns us in chapter 6, does he not? He warns us, beware of practicing righteousness in order to be seen by others. There's an inward position of the heart that is contrary to that of the kingdom that desires to do the right thing so that other people will look at you and will say, what a great job you've done. How amazing you are and will give you the praise. Now, it's certainly not true that everything that we do has to be done in secret. That's certainly not true. But, but the question is, what motivates you to do that thing? And Jesus says what should motivate the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is that they, people see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the inward motivation of righteousness for the citizen of the kingdom of heaven is so that they, people would see the good works that we do and not give glory to us, but give glory to our Father who is in heaven. That's the inward position. But ultimately, this means that the position of our hearts, that our treasure is not set on this life and what can be possessed here on earth. The praise the adoration, the money, the things. But our treasure, the, the treasure of our heart is set on eternal things. That's what he tells us at the end of chapter 6. That your, that your, your treasure, the, your heart's position, is not set on the things that you can get, but on eternal life. The things that you can do for God's kingdom. Sure, you can give away your possessions, you can fool many people by your actions. You can outwardly conform to many of the things that Jesus is teaching here. You can do those kinds of things. You can act like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Just like you can live your whole life and never cheat on your wife. There's plenty of unbelievers that live their life that way. They never cheat on their wife, and that's admirable and that's good. But there's an inward righteousness that is mostly between you and the Lord. That you cannot fake. You either have it or you don't. You either desire righteousness. 
Jesus says you either hunger and thirst for righteousness or you don't. It's binary. It is yes or no. It is either in or out. And it takes a radical transformation of the heart for our hearts to be moved in that direction. Second theme that I want you to see running through our, which, which is our third point. We represent his kingdom through outward righteousness. We represent his kingdom through outward righteousness. So we can't ignore outward righteousness at the expense of emphasizing inward righteousness. By outward righteousness, I mean the kind of righteousness that everyone else sees, that people can see and touch and feel, put their hands on and know and, and, and ascribe to you the things that people can see that you've done, the kind of righteousness that actually impacts other people. In other words, righteousness isn't merely doing something behind closed doors in your closet. That's not, that's not all that he means by righteousness. It's also lived outside. It's lived out in the open. And the city of Tuscaloosa should be able to see it and point to it. That's the point. That kind of outward righteousness. Now remember Jesus lists some other character traits of kingdom citizens in the Beatitudes. Right alongside spiritual poverty, right alongside mourning, you get things like mercy, forgiveness, and peacemaking. Mercy is not the kind of thing that ignores the faults of others. It doesn't just ignore and sweep under the rug. That's not mercy. It's not mercy to just pretend like what they did, they didn't do. That's not mercy. How can you actually exercise mercy towards something that somebody didn't do? You can't. Mercy is not just sweeping things under the, under the rug. It recognizes the faults or the mistakes or the shortcomings of others. But instead of telling somebody where they can go with their shortcomings, right, it's choosing instead to swallow the offense. That acknowledging it, but swallowing the offense. That could be everything from somebody sinning against you to somebody just getting on your nerves. Somebody refusing to discipline their own children. Kids running all over the place. Why, why can't they grab the reins here? I'm going to go tell them where they can go with their shortcomings. What they can do with all that. Now they may very well have some unruly children. But the merciful community will find ways to help the parents and woo them toward training their children rather than to just say flatly to them that this is where they can go and this is what you can do. But I give no means to actually practically help them do it. It should also be said that it, what goes right along with that is forgiveness. Extending forgiveness and peacemaking to one another. Paul, Paul says to the church at Colossae uh, about being a church. He says, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Jesus says the same thing at the end of, his, of the Lord's prayer. Does he not? He says, look, if you don't forgive other people of their sins against you, then the Lord's not going to forgive you. Amen. This is the kind of outward righteousness that the Lord is calling us to. At the end of the list of Beatitudes, Jesus points to the reason why we have to live this way. He says, you're the salt of the earth. You're a city on a hill. 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So that means that our outward displays of righteousness are never an end in and of themselves. Our outward displays of righteousness are never an end in and of themselves. We're not simply interested in providing a cup of cold water for somebody. Instead, we're interested in providing a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, and that's different. Because what we're doing is addressing the whole person, not just part of the person. We're recognizing that this person is both physical and spiritual. He has physical needs and he has spiritual needs as well. And I want to address both of them and really give them help. Now, that doesn't mean that everything I do has strings attached. I want to give you this cup of cold water so that I can tell you the gospel. That means that everything that I do for the lost person is addressing everything about them, both their physical and their spiritual needs. That that's truly rendering aid to someone. So if you're hungry, I don't want to just merely say, well, go in peace. Go with God. Be warm and be fed. I hope, hope it works out for you. Well, that's, not a, that's addressing maybe a spiritual need, but that's certainly not addressing the physical need as well. That's not representing the kingdom of God. Rather, it's addressing every person as body and soul. The body being necessary and having certain temporal needs and the soul being eternal as well. Both having needs that need to be addressed and neither can be ignored. But we also have to recognize that with all of the things that Jesus is laying out in the Sermon on the Mount, none of us can do these things perfectly. None of us can do these things perfectly. Nobody in this room obeys inwardly and outwardly to perfection. And this is precisely why the kingdom citizen is in need of Christ's righteousness. Jesus tells us in 548, you can look at that verse, you can mark that verse, underline it. 548, he tells us that in order to dwell with God in his kingdom, we must therefore be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he's not exaggerating. That's the way we want to interpret it. Well, he's just exaggerating. Surely he doesn't really mean that we have to be perfect. No, he means that in order to dwell with God who is perfect, you have to be perfect. But this is why we need the righteousness of another imputed to us or credited to our account. Our king, who is presenting us here in chapter 5 to 7, is presenting us to the, with the kingdom of God, has come to deal with the one thing that is keeping us out of the kingdom of God, and that is our own sin. And here, even in this very gospel, we will read that this king goes to the cross on our behalf to settle the account by taking God's wrath on his own shoulders for us. That though he lived perfectly, he knew you couldn't. So he did it for you, and there on the cross suffered God's wrath, an eternity of our hell in three hours. 
facing the full force of God's wrath. This is the beauty of the gospel. That Christ's righteousness can be yours by faith. And what I mean by faith is that you can not only express your belief in Him, but you can confess your sins to Him. You can swear allegiance to Him as your King. Because we will all either bow our knee and confess with our mouth now, or in eternity. And it's better to do it now. So what does that mean for us as a community of believers? What does that mean for Emmanuel Baptist Church going forward? What does next year look like? What does 10 years from now look like? What does 20, 30, 40 years from now look like? Well, to cut to the quick, I don't know. (laughs) But I'm going to lay out what I hope the direction is we're going towards. The first thing is this, that we must practice radically ordinary hospitality because God must reign in our homes first. We must practice radically ordinary hospitality. You can go ahead and put that up on the slide. Next. We must practice radically ordinary hospitality because God must reign first in our homes. That phrase, radically ordinary hospitality, comes from a book by Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I would highly recommend you getting that book And I would highly recommend you reading it cover to cover. It is incredible. It is convicting. It is biblically sound. And it is the direction that all of us, myself included, should be moving towards in our homes. The basic premise is this. God has given me all the things that I have. He's given to me my home. He's given to me my children. He's given to me all my possessions. He's put me in a neighborhood, and he's done all of that to introduce other people to his kingdom. Think about that for a second. He has done that. He has given that to you to introduce others to his kingdom. And as she puts it in the book, and I think she's absolutely right, he never gets the address wrong. So you're in the place that you're in for a reason. And we're to use all of the things that he's given to us, all of the things that are at our our disposal to be open toward the community around us, that they may come in, that through our lives, by sitting at our table, by having dinner with us, by watching how we interact with our family, by watching and participating in family devotions, by being a part of our family, even for that long, they get a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is really like. They get a glimpse of how the people of Christ really live. These are the tools that we have that he's given to us to woo people to himself. He's put you in that place to do the same. How are you using your neighborhood and your community to do that? What that means for us then is that we have to do a really good job with our families, with our young families, families with young children, preparing them, teaching them how to evangelize their children, how to disciple their children, how to train their children up and raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. How do we teach parents to do that? And so you will see from this day forward, including as early as this coming month, this this next month, a concerted effort on my part, on the part of the staff, 
to meet with families with young kids and teach them how to train their children, how to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That means that you'll probably see in this sanctuary as we worship more and more children in here. Praise God. They need to see their parents worship. They need to see that what their parents say they believe, they actually do believe. They need to see that happening. Second, we must prioritize service to our city because the kingdom of God has a real world impact. We must prioritize service to our city because the kingdom of God has a real world impact. How, how, do, we, how do we reach our city? How do we reach our city with the gospel? How do we go out into Tuscaloosa and we just, just reach our city? Do we go stand on a street corner and preach the gospel? Maybe. How do we reach our city? Yeah, I think it's very easy. It's not easy, but it's very easy to understand. By serving its needs. By serving its needs. What are its needs? Just like you wouldn't give a cup of cold water to somebody who had already drank their fill, who was waterlogged, you wouldn't say, here, take this cold water, it's good for you, and then shove it down their throat. In the same way, if you had a church that was in the middle of the richest community in the entire state, let's say, probably wouldn't it be advisable to start a soup kitchen. I'm just guessing. But it might involve that at the dinner parties that you have in those multi-million dollar homes that you're preaching repentance and sin at those dinner parties, or that you're bringing your rich friends into family devotions around your dinner table, as you disciple and train up your kids, as you share the gospel, as you, as you talk about the word of God freely and openly in your house, maybe you invite them into it. See, it doesn't mean it's easy. It just means that it's different. So what do we do? We look at the needs of the city around us. What are the needs of the city of Tuscaloosa? What are the needs of the North River community? What are the needs of the neighborhoods around us? We're starting a ministry in Wood Village next month. And one of the needs that we know about, that we know that is absolutely needed in that community, is help with homework. We know we need to do that. We want to share the gospel with them. We want to go in and share the gospel, and we're going to do that. But we also recognize that there are physical needs as well, and for whatever reason, whether it be because their parents are busy working or whatever, or maybe their parents don't care, or maybe anything in between, our cup of cold water is sitting down and helping them do their homework. And that includes the new kind of math that they're doing. So we've got to figure that out first. <laughs> Watch YouTube videos or whatever. But the point is that we're coming there to help both physical and spiritual needs. We don't want to be a church that's simply built on attraction, that's built on this come-and-see mentality. We plan plenty of things and put, put tons of money into, into brick and mortar, and some of, it is, is, some of it is necessary and good, and some of it is, hey, why don't you come in and look at what we're doing? Look how big and successful we are. Look at all the things that we have. Aren't they shiny and pretty and good? It's built on a come and see mentality. That's not what we want to be. No. The gospel changes all that. We're not Jerusalem. This isn't a temple. No. What Jesus came to give us is the gospel of peace. 
have your feet shod with the gospel of peace, that we're going out. It's not a come and see, it's go and tell. That we're going out into these communities. That we're going to teach them the gospel, and we're going to give them a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, that they may see and believe and come to know Christ as Savior. Third, we must prioritize church revitalization because the name of Christ is at stake. We must prioritize church revitalization because the name of Christ is at stake. Now, what is church revitalization? Let me just tell you in one stat. Churches are dying at a rate in this country at a rate of 6 to 10,000, uh, sorry, 6,000 to 10,000 every year. 6,000 to 10,000 churches are dying every year. That means 100 to 200 this week alone will die, will close their doors. Now, they may be closing their doors for a ton of reasons. It may be financial debt. It may be because they don't have someone to preach the gospel. It may be because they're not evangelizing the lost. In all likelihood, it's a combination of all three. And in most cases, it is a combination of all three. And so what does that mean that we have to do? How do we take part in church revitalization? How do we look at these churches out here? Because here's the mentality that we often get into. We look at these churches, the churches around us, as competition. Well, well, that's our competition down the road. And they're taking away people that could be coming here. And when one church closes its doors, hey, what do we get? We get a number of other people coming in our church doors. They're joining our church. They're, they're, they're giving to our church. They're participating in our worship. They're doing all, they're filling our pews. And we look at it like a business. And it's a tragedy that we look at it that way. It's sinful that we look at it that way. What happens when they close their doors is we lose a leg in the city. It's like a leg was chopped off. And now we have to do all the work that we were doing, but we have to do it hopping around on one leg. They're members of the body of Christ, of the global body of Christ. And our job together with all of these churches is to go out and give the name of Jesus to people that don't yet believe. That's the goal. And we're participating with North River. And we're participating with Northridge and Church at Tuscaloosa. We're participating with these churches in doing exactly that. And so it's a, tra- it's a tragedy that we look at things that way. And that has to stop. And instead, what we have to see is there's churches that are dying. How can we help? So what that means for us is that we're probably going to have to continue to bring people in on staff, train them up, teach them how to preach and teach the gospel. Find churches that are dying and find a place to put them That probably also means that financially we have to be sound enough and ready enough that when they go there to a dying church that's financially crippled, that we have to provide them with enough support to be able to stay there, to be able to preach the gospel to these people, to be able to train up their people to lead them to ministry and sharing the gospel and to going out. We have to be a people in a church that's dedicated to the kingdom of God in this community. And that means we have to make tons of financial sacrifices that are hard. That mean giving money to a person who's not on our staff anymore, who's preaching at another church. But we're doing it so that he can be there preaching the gospel so that church can live. It's foolish to think that somebody like Jeremy Hudson would be here forever. 
I think the world of Jeremy. I think he has tons of talent. I think he has a knack for preaching the gospel. I see in him things that you guys probably miss on a daily basis. I work with him every day. I see that he's dedicated to righteousness. That he wants to live right. That he desires nothing more than to teach other people and encourage them in the word to build them up and to send them out. And I'm confident that one day the Lord will use him in a church behind a pulpit. Our job as a church is to encourage him and to tell him and to build him up and to tell him, yes, continue. I don't know when that day will be. I don't. But I'm confident that one day it will happen. And I'm confident also that there will be a dying church out there that desperately needs him. And then when he stands up behind their pulpit and he begins preaching the gospel, that that church will gradually start to hear a heartbeat. That it will come alive. That church will be built around the gospel that is preached. Those people that are trained up will be sent out. And they'll begin bringing other people in. That our part in the process is to bring somebody else in to train them up to do the same thing. Fourth, we must prioritize kingdom building in places where Christ has not been named because Christ's righteousness will be required of everyone. We must prioritize kingdom building in places where Christ has not been named because Christ's righteousness will be required of everyone. What this means very simply is that we have to go with our feet. That we have to go to places that are difficult. That we have to meet people that have never even heard of Jesus before in their life. That can say to you what one man said to me in China. What took you so long to get here? I'm 82 years old, he said. I'm 82 years old. My dad, my grandfather, they all died. What took you so long to give me this news? Can you imagine hearing that? We have to go. We have to tell so that we can hear that. It needs to cause within us a deep-seated desire to preach the gospel to the nations. To see that what we have really is good news. And that there really are people out there that want to hear it. That have never heard it before in their entire life. And there are people out there that are doing that work right now. That want your partnership. Not just with your money with your feet we're planning a trip right now we don't know if it's going to make we're going to pray to the end that it does make to Southeast Asia to work with some missionaries that we know in the area that are connected to our body that area is not great for the gospel right now and it's pretty hostile towards it I think that means that a fire is ready to catch 
And so that means that we need to go and see it. We need to partner with them. So we're planning on heading out there in November. You'll be hearing from me soon about opportunities that you may have to go with us. And so we're praying to that end that the church actually makes, that there are people that God has prepared in this body to actually go, that funds are there, that vacation time is there, that all of those things that he has ironed out for us so that we may go and we may tell. Because Jesus is our king. And we live in his kingdom. We abide by his rules. We follow his direction. He has the authority to command us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that all of the things that I've laid out here that have been on my heart, you know for how long, would come to fruition things even greater than these that I couldn't even imagine. Pray that our desire, our deep-seated passion, our heartbeat is for the nations. But I pray that it starts in our homes. Lord, allow us to look at the children that are sitting next to us in worship, the children that are sitting across a table from us at our dinner tables, we see them as precious souls that need to have the good news delivered to them. But we don't know how. Give us the wisdom and the knowledge as parents to give to them the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray for our children that they'll hear it and they'll receive it hearts will be opened. That when they hear it, they'll understand it as good news and they'll come running to it. Lord, I pray that you would send out an army from this church, an army of children that grow up into adults that desire nothing more than to live under your rule and your reign. Lord, allow us as a church to embody the kind of nature, the hospitality that you're telling us we must have here. Father, we know that all of this is going to only be by your grace. You give us what we're asking for. Pray it in Jesus' name.